There are a couple of ways to approach the scriptures. One of them is to pray with it. And that's what I'll be talking about, and so will Deacon um, this evening. And then the other is the study, the reading and the study of the scriptures. And if you have tried that ever before, if you've picked up your Bible, then you can see how that's pretty difficult. It's good the first two books, Genesis and Exodus, and then you hit Leviticus and you go, whoa, what is this? So we wrote this book, Ignite, to give you a, as I said, a primer or a map, a map for reading the Bible, because it's not actually a single book. For us, it's a single book, but the word Bible comes from the word biblios, books. It's a library of books. And just as in any other library, you're going to have a whole lot of different genres. So you have history books, you have the narrative stories, you have census books, you have apocalyptic literature, you have prophets and prophecies, and lots of different genres in the biblios. And you need to know something about that, right? Before you start to, to pick it up and read it or else you get lost. And so that's why uh, we wrote that study. And the chapters are divided into the who of the Bible, the where of the Bible, which would be the, the geography. The who would be God himself. I am who am and his relationship with his people. So God and us. And then the what is the covenant love of God, the full self-donation that God makes of himself, both in the old covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. The new is fulfilled in the old, in Christ. The where is the Holy Land, the geography. It makes a difference that we know something about the geography of the land because certain passages make more sense. For instance, I always like to use my arm as like a, a map because it's shaped a lot like the Holy Land. It's a long, skinny little area. And up here is Mount Hermon, and the backbone of it is the Jordan River that goes straight down my middle finger. The, the snows from Mount Hermon, you probably know this better than I do, they empty into the Sea of Galilee in my palm, and then the Jordan River goes straight down the middle of my arm, down to the bottom, which is the Dead Sea right? And Jerusalem is down here. So why is it then that we read that Jesus is, he goes up to Jerusalem? If Jerusalem's down here in the south, how does he go up to Jerusalem? Well, he goes up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is up on the mountains, on the hills, right? So he's actually going up in elevation even though he's traveling south. So if you know something about the topography, if you know something about the geography of the Holy Land, then some of that stuff makes more sense. Right, so the who, the what, the where, the when. So a, a brief history of God's people from beginning all the way to the book of Revelation. Um, the why, which is that love of God, and the how. The how of the Old Testament, which is the liturgy of the Old Testament and what that looked like. And the how of the New Testament, which is the liturgy of the New Testament and our sacraments. So we talk about all of that in that book, and it's a, a nice overview. So that's an approach for reading and studying the Bible. Before you ever even pick one up, a study, a book like that is really good to have because it gives you the lay of the land so that you know something about it. You have some context before you start picking up a book 
a book of books and don't you just get lost right even even Peter says in the New Testament of Paul that Paul's just hard to understand and if you read any of his writings the letters I forgot the the New Testament you've got the the Gospels and then the letters and then the the Apocalypse um, and Peter says of Paul in his writings he says he's just hard he's hard and if you read him he just he is the king of a run-on sentence he just goes on and on and on so knowing something about the Bible is important when you're going to try to read and study it. So that's one way to approach the scriptures. But the other way is to pray with the scriptures. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about tonight. And that's what Deacon will talk about as well. He's going to concentrate on the Psalms. I am going to concentrate on the readings. I love what the bishop said tonight in his homily about it being a word of God to you individually. Every single day, God is speaking to you. Every day. And we say, well, God never says anything to me. But he speaks to you every day through the readings of the church. We just don't listen. And now you know. So one of my practices from early on as a very young Christian, I am, can you tell I'm not from around here? <laughs> I'm from... Tennessee, which is kind of midway east in the USA. So we're, I'm from the south, so I can make a one-syllable word, three syllables pretty easily, the south. <laughs> but from the very, a very young age, 20-ish, 20, uh, as a convert to the Catholic faith, we did not have a way to get in touch with God the way Catholics do. We didn't have sacraments. We didn't have a way. The only way was the, the, the Bible, the scriptures. And we called this the Word of God, and it is. It is God's Word. The Bible itself says so. However, the Word of God is actually a person, right? A person, not a book. And that was one of the traps that we as non-Catholics fell into because we didn't have sacraments and the one table, the Catechism tells us in 103, the one table of the Lord is both the scriptures and the Eucharist. And since we didn't have the whole table, this became a almost a God, to be perfectly honest. But it's because it's so powerful. The scriptures have the power, the power that we spoke of in the liturgy tonight, the power of those prophecies that of course prophesied about the Messiah, about Christ, but he fulfilled that for us. He sent us the Holy Spirit so that we are his sons and daughters. We are God's sons and daughters. He told us in the parable of the prodigal son, everything I have is already yours. We don't live like that. We don't live like everything God has is already ours. We live like beggars. Dear Lord, please do this for me. Dear Lord, please do this for me. And there's a place for reverence, right? But if it's true that the gospel is good news, the word gospel means good news. Why is it good news? Because we are meant to be free sons and daughters. Free from sin, from habits, from addictions, from any sort of slavery. Free and at peace. No anxiety, no fear. That's good news. If that were possible, 
Would that not be good news to you? That is our inheritance in Christ. And we know about that inheritance and what it means and how to have it through his word. The grace and the charity to live it comes to us through the sacraments. But we have to know something about God and his ways. I didn't actually intend to do this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something a little different than I expected. So since I've talked here for three weeks about my father wound, <laughs> My father wound and my anger problem, uh, which led to all kinds of ugly stuff. I had, as a non-Catholic, just before I came into the Catholic Church, we experienced in our Protestant church two church splits. And in Protestantism, what happens is you get a group of people in the church who have a difference of opinion or a difference of personality. Uh, they have a, an issue either with someone else in the parish or the church or with the pastor. Um, they get a posse together. There's lots of gossip, lots of backbiting, and everybody gets mad. Everybody has to choose a side. I know that does not happen in Catholic churches, does it? Ever. <laughs> well, what doesn't happen in a Catholic church is that half the people go down the street and start another church. That does not happen in the Catholic Church, thanks be to God. But it does in the non-Catholic churches. And when I was about 20 years old, I saw my first church split, and I didn't know anything about anything, and I didn't know our pastor very well, so it didn't bother me too much. I just remember being in the scriptures every day, listening for God's voice, and what he said to me is, keep your mouth shut. I said, yes, sir. So I didn't gossip about it, except to my husband. So we talked about it, but that was it. I tried very hard to just obey what God said and not talk about it. And of course, half the people went down the road and went to another church. They take half the resources, half the helpers, half of everything. We got a new pastor. Five years later, the exact same thing happened. Same people. It was the music people. It's funny about those music people. Thank you. I'm kidding. But it was. In our, in our church, it was the music people. Same, t same group of people, same issue, different pastor. And I did love this pastor because I do have a father wound. And this particular pastor affirmed my teaching gift, and he gave me his co-ed uh, Bible study class to teach, to take over for him. And I grew it to the point where... All the other classes, the people in the other classes came to mind. And that made a couple of people a little bit upset. But he stood by me. And so when that second church split happened, now in a Protestant church, the pastor's livelihood is centered around their church. And so if they lose a job, they lose their income. And this pastor had three children. So when that happened again to another pastor, whom one I did love because he was like a father figure to me, they split the church, same thing happened. And in fact, they accused him of some financial impropriety, which was later proven false, but by then he'd already moved on, lost his, his income, devastated him, him financially and his reputation and everything. I was so pissed off. 
I mean, I was angry. Because I have a father wound and I have a rage problem. So I was mad. At that point, I had seen this happen twice. And what I know now is that twice makes a pattern. When the Holy Spirit wants to teach you something, he gives it to you at least twice. And if you'll notice in your life and your behavior, your stuff repeats in patterns like that. So when I saw this happen twice, I knew there was something going on, especially because my entire life with God to that point in the scriptures, in prayer on a daily basis, had been the correction of my rebellion against authority because of my father wound and my rage issue. So I saw these people in this church doing exactly the same thing that I had been in trouble for over and over and over and over again with God. And that made me even more mad. Why do they get to do it? Why am I the one in trouble? And I think he was probably laughing because you're the one listening. Not the only one, of course, but I was listening. So I started investigating because I thought, you know what? I know this is wrong. I know this is sinful. I know that the splitting, the backbiting, the gossip, the rebellion is wrong. It's sinful. It's what split heaven. So I went on a journey, I suppose. I went back to Martin Luther. Because remember me talking about the patterns? So God had spent all this time working with me on proper submission to authority, what that looks like, right? Especially when you have crappy authorities. What do you do then? And then I saw my church split twice. So I was getting it in an individual way, and then suddenly I was getting it in a public way. What happens when this, when this happens in a public way? So I went back and started looking at the Reformation, and what I discovered is, holy cow, what happens when a, like, a whole church? What happens when this happens on a grand scale? And what I discovered is that Martin Luther was not very holy. That's the first thing. And I started to read him in his own words, not in the German, but in a translation. In, his, in the primary sources, I started reading his writings. And then I got a little nervous. We left that church because at that point I realized there's something, there's something wrong with the foundation of how these, our churches are set up. And you know, it was funny because I finally realized that there were called, we were called Protestants. Protestants were protesting. I was like, I, I didn't mean to be protesting. <laughs> and yet that's exactly what we are, what we were. So we withdrew from that church and we kind of went and hid in a mega church, 8,000 families. And in that time, in my daily scripture reading, in my prayer with God, he started to work with me out of Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. And he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, what I know about rest, first of all, is Later on in this chapter, we see that the rest of God is ultimately heaven. 
the final Sabbath rest, the one we're all looking toward, right? But ultimately, if the gospel is good news, don't we want rest in our thoughts, in our emotions, in our memories, in our hearts, in our bodies? Don't we want rest? That's what we want. That's what we're promised. Now, we all know that ultimately, okay, one day, yeah, we'll have it in heaven. But it's meant to begin now. Eternal life begins now, and it's not a matter of time. It's a quality. It's the rest, the peace, the rest from anxiety and fear. How do I know? Because I'm going to show you right here. He says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And I read that, and I knew he was speaking to me. When you start a prayer practice with God in the scriptures, he begins to speak to your heart in a way that you know it is him, and you there's no argument. And I knew he was saying this to me. Beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. An evil, evil meaning sick. A sick heart of unbelief, literally meaning no faith. A sick heart of no faith. And I said, Lord, how in the world can you apply that to me? I teach Sunday school. I'm in church every time the doors are open. I teach Bible study. I go on mission trips. I do vacation Bible school. I sing in the choir. I'm in women's ministry. How can you say, I have my, I, beware, you have an evil heart of unbelief. And he said to me, I want you to learn how to rest. I said, I'm not tired. <laughs> we left that church and we went to a large, huge church where normally all the places that I would have served were already full. And that was nice for about a month. You know, because I was used to being at church all the time. I loved it. I wasn't burned out. I wasn't resentful. But it was nice to go from Sunday school at 9 o'clock in the morning on Sunday to preaching at 10, go home and get dinner, come back, have your women's meeting or whatever meeting, have your Bible study, have your choir practice, have your night church, and then go home. I mean, that's an all-day marathon on a Sunday. And that was just our practice. I loved it. But suddenly, I wasn't doing it any, anymore. And like I said, that was nice for about a month. And then I started to get really anxious. Beware, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. Not one of you would be here if you thought that you had the ability or the we're in danger of having an evil heart of unbelief. And yet look what he says. So we have to back up. What's he talking about? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He's talking about the Exodus. He's talking about the promise that he made his people. I'm going to rescue you from slavery, every slavery. And I'm going to give you the promised land of rest flowing with milk and honey. We've heard those promises. And if you're honest, you've said in your heart, this is not what you promised me, Lord. This is not what you promised. Where's my milk and honey? Where's my peace? Where's my rest? Why do I battle fear and anxiety? Y'all don't say that stuff to him? I say that stuff. 
because it's true. He rescued them from Egypt, and the very first thing he did was stick them in a desert. Promised them a land flowing with milk and honey, Sabbath rest, peace, for thoughts, emotions, body, and soul. And the first thing he does is stick them in the desert. No water, no food, crappy leaders. They get bored. They get in trouble because they're trying to find entertainment for themselves. Distraction. He says, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. When I read that, I thought, are you kidding? I always go astray in my heart? I haven't known your ways? Did you know God expects you to know his ways? Did you know he even had ways? This is why Bible study is so important and reading and praying with the scriptures is so important. This is important. I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Could this be our problem? Could there be something going on in this passage? Is this why we don't experience peace and rest in our thoughts and our emotions and our bodies and our souls? I think so. I think so. So we have to go back to the original account, back in Genesis and Exodus and Numbers, and read what happened, because this actually is a reference to Psalm 95. If you look in your Bible, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through 11, what you see is this is a quote, and the quote is from Psalm 95. But that's just one place where it's, summarized that whole wilderness wandering. They actually named it. They gave it a proper name, Meribah, the day of rebellion, the day of trial in the wilderness. Woo, we probably should know what happened back there. Because I don't know about you, I don't want to get in that trouble. They always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my wrath. Rest. Now, a word about wrath in the scriptures. I don't know about y'all, but I mean, my dad, the reason I had a father wound is because my father was so angry. He was full of wrath. He was aggressive. He was dominating. He was mean. He was a bully. He was manipulative. He was loud. He was abusive. So when I hear God is going to swear in his wrath, there's a little piece of me that just says, whatever. Just saying. I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. But here's the thing about wrath in the Bible. So our wrath, the, the scriptures talk about how God's wrath is not like ours. His ways are not our ways. His wrath is not like our wrath. It's not provoked and it's not retaliatory. The word wrath in the scriptures, particularly here, thumos in the Greek, it means an abiding resistance to sin. It's like gravity. If you go to the top of a building and you jump off, the building's not mad at you. You're not being punished. You just did something stupid. 
or you did something knowing that the gravity would hurt you. So God's wrath is an abiding resistance to sin. The book of wisdom says that we are punished through the very thing in which we sin. God does not need to get even with you. He does not need to punish you. It's enough punishment that you incur the consequences of the sin that you're in. And some of those consequences are a lack of rest in your thoughts, your emotions, your body, and your soul. Those are some of the consequences. When you go to a doctor and you get a checkup and they say to you, you sure do need to cut back on your stress. Too much stress makes you sick. Oh, I got a really good talk on that, but I don't have time. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So God has an abiding resistance to sin. What was their sin in the desert? That's what we have to know. How many of you feel like you are in a desert? You've been in a desert? It, your whole life is a perpetual desert. This is not what God promised. What the heck is going on? They always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. What are God's ways? One of the ways of God is the way of repetition. I already said that God works in patterns, right? I'm learning this at the time when I've watched two churches split and I'm, I have read about the Reformation and I can see the Reformation, right, was a revolt. It was a rebellion. Patterns. I had spent the last 15, 20 years learning about authority, proper authority, how to submit properly, what to do when the leaders are not good. Patterns. This quote of Psalm 95 is just one summary. It's in the book of Hebrews, and then we have the original in Psalm 95, and then we have, back in the Old Testament, the actual original account. So this is just three places. It's actually summarized several times throughout the scriptures, but I want to show you something just right here. The book of Hebrews is in the New Testament. Psalms is in the Old Testament. And Exodus and Numbers is in the Torah, the first five books. This summary and this warning spans both Testaments and the whole Bible. Do you know how when your mama said your first name, your middle name, and your last name, and you knew that whatever she said next, you better listen to? That's what he's doing. Listen. This is important enough to repeat over and over and over. So his first way is the way of repetition. When you see something in your life happen more than one time, you need to go to God and ask him, what are you doing? What are you teaching? What do I need to know about this? His second way is the way of the desert. Why does he put us in the desert? No water, no food. That's why. Deprivation is where we begin to learn to trust God. 
Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, a sick heart of no faith. What is faith? It's not catechism. Not in this context. It's not having the right doctrine, although that is very important. But that's not what this is talking about. The book of James says even the demons believe. The demons believe and tremble. So what is this? What is it that's going to keep me from having the promised land of rest? Well, it has to do with repetition, and it has to do with the desert. And what they experienced over and over and over again in the desert is deprivation. No food, no water, no leaders, boredom, deprivation. Why does God do that to us? Because he wants them and he wants us to learn how to simply ask him for what we need. And he's so generous, he'll even give us the stuff we want. He said in that parable of the prodigal son, everything I have is already yours. And we learn in the desert how to trust him for it. When I was learning this lesson, oh dear, when I was learning this lesson, <laughs> I wanted, I had brought my oldest son home to homeschool and I wanted my kids to have piano. I wanted them to have music as part of their curriculum, but we were po. And I mean not poor, we were po. We couldn't afford a piano, we couldn't afford the, the lessons, none of it, po. But I, was, I really wanted them to have that. Now this was, wasn't a need necessarily, but I was learning. I was learning to trust him with the stuff I really needed, the stuff that I, my family needed, and then I learned to trust him with stuff I might even just want. So I went to him and I asked him, I, was, I said, Lord, I, I know this isn't like something they have to have, but I really would look, like to have this for them. But I, we're po. <laughs> Two weeks later, my aunt calls me and she says, I'm moving back home. Do you want my mother's piano? And I said, yes, and she shipped it to my house. So I knew, okay, that's a yes. All right, Lord, I need the lessons. What am I going to do about that? I found the best piano teacher I could find, and she was so expensive there was no way. So I called her up. I said, I'm not trying to insult you but is there any way we might could barter? And she said, immediately, she said, if you'll clean my house. So for four years, I cleaned her house every week while my sons had piano lessons on a piano that God gave me because I asked for it. Down the road, my mom and I were at an antique shop and I saw this beautiful stained glass window, huge. It came out of a church. It was like this size, huge, gorgeous, $4,000, $4,000. We were po. Wasn't any way in the world we could afford something like that. And even if we could have, if I'd have had $4,000, I wouldn't have spent it on something like that, as pretty as it was. So I just went to God and I said, that sure is pretty, Lord. Can I have one? <laughs> and that summer, my husband took a mission trip to the Midwest 
of the United States and the whole mission trip was to replace the stained glass windows in a church with storm windows and he brought me two of them. What is he trying to teach us here in this desert? To just trust, not complain. They murmured and they complained. Have you noticed that the more you complain, the more you get the thing you don't want? Why? Because Thanksgiving is the multiplier. I bet you haven't noticed that when Jesus prays over the loaves in John 6, it's not the, the asking, it's the Thanksgiving. It's the Thanksgiving that multiplies it. Your Thanksgiving, you're focusing on what's good, multiplies the good, and your complaining multiplies the bad. Why? Because you need another lesson in trusting. And how do you get another one? It comes right on the heels of the first one. They didn't have water. Instead of simply asking God for water, they complained and murmured and accused. He gave them water anyway, but they got another lesson. What was the lesson? Now they don't have food. He gave them food anyway, after they murmured and complained and accused, he gave them food, but you know what? They got another lesson over and over and over again. And finally, when they made it to the border of the promised land, they couldn't go in. It sounds here like God was standing there going, you're not coming into my promised land. But that is not what happened. What happened is they didn't trust him to get them in to the promised land. And they died outside. And this is how we live our lives, wandering around right outside the promised land with everything at our fingertips. Everything he has is already yours. If you'll stop complaining and just ask in faith, this is faith. Trust. People say God's always on time. He is not on time. He is late. He makes you wait later than late. He'll make you wait so late, you're going to die. And then he shows up another day late. You don't believe me? What about the story of Lazarus? They call for, for Jesus because Lazarus is dying. And in fact, he's dead. And what does it say? He waits two days longer. But what happens when he shows up? A resurrection. If you'll focus on what is good and thank God for his provision at every single step, whatever it is, it's meant to be a deprivation because his ways are desert ways. We have to learn how to trust him like a heavenly father. We don't know how. We weren't taught. He knows that. He's not mad at you. You just need to learn what love really is. And you only learn that in the desert, in your deprivations. His ways are the ways of repetition, the ways of the desert, and the way of the word. In chapter 4, he says, The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, 
but all things are naked and open to him, to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God is how you learn who he is and what his ways are and what he's doing in your life and what your purpose is. And the fact that you're a child of God, a son and daughter of God, everything he has is already yours. You don't have to beg him for it. He's waiting to give it to you. Just stop complaining and be thankful for the provision that he gives you. Because if you're thankful, you'll get more. If you complain, you get more lessons. We're hard-headed. It takes forever for us to learn. So we repeat the same things over and over and over. That is what the children of Israel teach us. God works in patterns. He worked in patterns in them. He works in your patterns of behavior and relationships. Why? Because your woundedness is there, your baggage from Egypt. That's where it is. And he wants you to be able to live in this land of perfect rest. It is your promise. It is your promise. Why don't we make it? Because we won't trust him to teach us how to live in the desert. Because what actually ends up happening is that the desert is transformed into the promised land. So he wasn't preventing them from going in. They got to the promised land and they were not capable of going in. Because they were afraid. Here's the last point. And I'm going to turn it over to Deacon. The point of the deprivations is to pull up that fear. I'm not going to have what I need. I'm, I'm not going to have love. I'm not going to have money. I'm not going to have a job. I'm not going to have a car. I'm not going to have a husband or a wife. I'm not going to have what I need. It pulls up that fear because the fear comes from the baggage and he wants to heal it. And it's painful, but it's necessary. His ways are the ways of the repetition, the way of the desert, and the way of the word. Mary said, may it be done to me according to your word. How are you going to know what God wants to do in you and with you if you are not in his word on a daily basis? Read the readings every day. Pray with them. Deacon's going to tell you some more about how to do that, and our book, Ignite, helps you do it too. Thank you, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Sonia. All right. She's awesome, man. Love Sonia, man. This is great. This is our last night here. We've enjoyed our time here uh, together very much. And uh, I just want to share a few thoughts about one of my absolute favorite books of the Old Testament, and that is the book of Psalms. Now, when I was nine years old, I thought that God might be calling me to a vocation. Uh, I remember I used to love going to Mass. Now, how many nine-year-olds you know love going to Mass? Not many, probably. But my mom noticed that I was very serious whenever I would go to Mass. So what she would do with my siblings, she would uh, sit me right on the aisle, the pew right next to the aisle. She would stand next to me. And my, si my siblings would be on the other side of her because they were typical kids, <laughs> throwing Cheerios, right? But, 
But she slept so I could be focused on what was going on in the altar. Now, I remember thinking there's something really cool going on up there. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I like it. And then I started serving mass. And I thought, oh, I want to do what that priest is doing. And then I went to a Benedictine high school, a high school run by Benedictine monks. They had a come and see program. So I went and saw for four years, all four years of high school. I lived in and out of the monastery. And that was my first introduction in a deep way to the Psalms because I prayed with the monks every day. Now my previous experience with the Psalms was what? At mass, the responsorial Psalm. But now in the monastery, those Psalms spoke to me and I fell in love. And now I've been praying the Psalms for over 40 years, especially as Shames, because in the Latin rite, all the clergy pray the liturgy of the hours every day. And the bulk of the liturgy of the hours is the Psalms. I've been praying them over 40 years and I never get bored. I always look forward to praying the Psalms every day. Now, Obviously, I'm praying my psalms. They mean something to me different in my 50s than they did in my 20s or my 30s. Life experience, children, tragedies, all kinds of things happen. And it changes the way you look at the psalm, changes the way you approach the psalm, how you enter into the mystery of the psalm, how the psalm is speaking to you at this particular time in your life. That's what makes them so beautiful. The Psalms are thousands of years old, and they still allow us to enter into the mystery of God's love. Now, in Hebrew, the Psalms are called the Sefer Telechim, or the Book of Sung Praises. But the word Psalm comes from the Greek word Samoi, which means songs sung to the lyre, which is one of the instruments that was used in the Psalms. Now, there are 150 psalms broken into five books. Psalms 1 through 41, 42 to 72, 73 to 89, 90 to 106, and 107 to 150. Now, why do you think they're broken into five books? What do you think it's trying to mirror? No. That's a good guess, though, the rosary. But, uh, no. Uh, <laughs> the Torah, the Pentateuch, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the book of the law, the Mosaic law. The Psalms are part of the Davidic covenant, huh? the Davidic law, because most of the Psalms were written by David. Most of the 150, over half were written by him. In fact, David is the only one that has Psalms in all five books. He's the only one. Now, there were other authors of the Psalms. Well, who are these dudes? Where'd they come from? Well, David directed the chief Levites to appoint men to serve as superintendents of the musical guild of the Jewish temple. So let's just see. And you, by the way, you can see a whole list of these guys. First Chronicles 15, 16 to 22. So 1 Chronicles 15, 16 to 22, you'll see a list of all of them. I'm just going to list the main ones that you see mostly in the Psalms. There's Asaph. Asaph means gather. 
All right? Now, these are people who either wrote the Psalms or they put music to the Psalms. All right? So Asaph means gather. He's like Psalm 80, uh, 78, 79, 80, 81, 82, 83. It's all Asaph. Then there was the sons of Korah. So Korah rebelled against Moses and Aaron in Numbers chapter 16. So it says the ground opened and Korah and his family went down alive to Sheol. Fire from heaven consumed the followers of Korah. The only ones that survived were the sons of Korah. Numbers chapter 26, verse 11. Now, they weren't the actual physical sons of Korah because they were all killed when the ground opened. But these were the followers of Korah who did not rebel. Not only were they superintendents of the musical guild, the sons of Korah were also the caretakers and custodians of the sacred vessels and vestments that were used in the worship of God. Right? Oh, and by the way, Korah in uh, Hebrew means baldness. So maybe I'm descended from Korah. I don't know. You know? <laughs> then there was Jedithan. Jedithan means lauder or praiser, one who lauds or praises. Right? So Psalms 39, 62, and 77 are attributed to Jedithan. Then there were the Ezraites. The Ezraites were a clan within the tribe of Levi. The two main guys from there is Haman. Haman means faithful. He's the son of Joel and the grandson of the prophet Samuel. And his surname was uh, the singer. And then there was Ethan. Ethan or Nathan means firm, lasting, solid, permanent. He's the son of Cushiah, and uh, he's responsible for Psalm uh, 89. So Haman's 88, 89 is uh, uh, Etan, 90 is Moses. Moses wrote one Psalm, Psalm 90. And David's son Solomon wrote two Psalms, Psalm 72 and 127. Now, what is Solomon famous for besides all the women? <laughs> and being the wisest king in the history of Israel. What else did he do? Built the temple, right? Psalm 127. If the Lord does not build the house, in vain do the builders labor. Huh? Makes sense. Now, there are all kinds of psalms. And obviously the psalms, ultimately, just like Scripture, Old Testament, always points us and directs us to Jesus. And there are all kinds of psalms. There's, uh, for example, there's Shigayon psalms. So Shigayon means lament, right? It's a lyrical poem composed under strong, impassioned emotion. So Psalm 7, for example. Habakkuk chapter 3 would be another Shigayon. So if you look at quickly at Psalm 7, because I know you all got your Bibles because you're Catholics. So it says, and, and what's interesting with these psalms, there's what's called a prescript. So before the actual psalms start, many of the psalms have some verses that come before. This one says, a lament, a shigayon in Hebrew, of David that he chanted to the Lord on account of Cush, the Benjaminite. So this prescript, prescript gives some historical context for why the psalm was written. 
but it also gives things like musical direction. It gives things what instruments are supposed to be used. It talks about who was the writer, but who wrote the music. So all kinds of interesting things, and we'll see some of these other ones uh, in the prescript here. And for, in the Masoretic text, which is the Jewish text of the Psalms, uh, it counts as a verse, right? So for example, someone said to me once, because I said Psalm 46 verse 11 says, be still and know that I am God. Uh, it's, oh, Deacon, it's Psalm 46 verse 10. Nope, because verse 1 is what? A prescript. Now, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version, it doesn't count the prescript. Right? It only counts the actual psalm. So that's why you see, if you have, in the breviary, it'll say it'll start with verse 2, not verse 1. Right? And also the numbering. You see how sometimes in the psalms in your Bible, it'll have two numbers? Like this one says... Psalm 19 and then 18 right next to it, right? Two numbers. Why are there two numbers? In the Septuagint or the Greek version of the Psalms, the Psalms split at Psalm 10. So in the Masoretic or the Jewish version, there's only Psalm 10. In the uh, Septuagint, it breaks Psalm 10 up into two Psalms, Psalm 9a and 9b. And that numbering goes all the way till they rejoin again at Psalm 147. So that's why you see two numberings. We as Catholics follow the Masoretic text or the Jewish text. So when we give a number of the Psalm, we're actually given the real number of the Psalm, right? Nothing against our Greek brothers and sisters, but I like the original better. Now, there are also, for example, Hallel Psalms. You know what Hallel means, right? What? Like, hallelujah, right? Praise God, right? So there are psalms of praise. 113 to 118 and 135 are hallel psalms. There are also deutero hallel psalms or second praise psalms, not psalms 145 to 150. There's, there's also imprecatory psalms or cursing psalms. Now, don't cover your kids' ears. These aren't that, 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 that kind of cursing. Okay, but these are psalms where they're called curses. Now, um, when you're praying the liturgy of the hours, the church, for some reason, has taken out some of these psalms. So when you pray the liturgy of the hours, you will never pray these psalms. I, I know I stick them back in there because I like what St. Augustine says. You have to look at these psalms. Um, in their Christological, we look at type, the typological look at the Psalms, you have to look at them as they point to Christ. So, for example, so those three Psalms are Psalm 58, 83, and 109 are never prayed in the Latin Rite Liturgy of the Hours. Like, for example, why? Uh, like, here's uh, some of the imprecatory Psalms. This is from Psalm 58. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of these lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. Let them wither like grass that is trodden underfoot. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like a woman's miscarriage that never sees the sun. Ooh, ouch. Mm. 
So that's why they didn't include that song. But see, here's what are we talking about here? Why are they using such aggressive David? This one's written by. So this precept says for the choir master. In tone like do not destroy a michtam of David. So David wrote the psalm. It says for the choir master. So David said, I wrote this psalm, but I'll let the choir master write the music to it. So he gave it to the choir master. In tone like do not destroy. So there's, a, there, there's some kind of tune called do not destroy. David said, I like that tune. Make this psalm sound like the same tune as do not destroy. And then it says michtam. Now, there are certain words in the prescript that we don't know what they mean today. I mean, we don't know what they mean back then. Like miktam, miktam means thing that covers, but we don't know what it meant when it's used here. Maskil means enlightenment, but when it says a maskil of David, we don't know what it meant in this context. And by the way, miktam, that word is only used by Psalms written by David. So, I mean, I... I researched Jewish scholars, the best Catholic biblical scholars, and no one knows what these words meant back then. All right? So I might dig into that some more. Maybe you can help me. All right? That's awesome. So these, because what? Because when I read this psalm, tear out their fangs, O Lord, let them vanish like water. I'm thinking, here Christ has come with his cross to destroy sin. So this is what I want God to do with sin in my life. Tear out the fangs. Get that. Help me get rid of that sin, Lord. Let that sin leave my body like water that runs away. That's what I'm praying as I'm entering into this psalm. All right? Now, there are some beautiful things happening in the psalms here uh, that I, I want to make some connections with you. Because this is how we enter into the mystery of the psalm, into how the psalm speaks to us today. So the psalms are written between about 1000 BC and 200 BC. So over a period of about 800 years, the psalms are written. Now, we know on the cross that our Lord Jesus Christ, blessed be his name, wrote, uh, was praying Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the Lord would have prayed the rest of that psalm on the cross, right? But the only part that we have recorded is that first line. But why was he praying that particular psalm on the cross, right? So let's take a look at it real quick. If you've got your Bibles, open up to Psalm 22. Now, the prescript for the choir master in, a, in the manner of the doe at daybreak, a psalm of David. So again, David gives a psalm to the choir master, put music to this, and I want it to sound like the doe at daybreak. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you far from saving me? So far from my words of anguish. Oh my God, I call by day and you do not answer. I call by night, and I find no reprieve. Now, why was Jesus praying that from the cross? Now, our Protestant brothers and sisters will say, well, the Father took all his wrath and his rage, and he dumped it all on his son on the cross. 
What father would ever do that to their child? That's not what was going on here. This is called a messianic psalm of fulfillment. Because let's see what else was going on in this psalm. Parched as burnt clay is my throat. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of the wicked besets me. They tear holes in my hands and my feet. I can count every one of my bones. These people stare at me and gloat. They divide my clothing among them. They cast lots for my robe. This is the crucifixion. But this psalm was written 700 years before Jesus was even born. Jesus was praying this psalm because he's showing the people this psalm is being fulfilled in your presence. I am the one that Dave was talking about in this psalm. That's what he's letting them know. And the other thing is this, why he was praying that psalm. We've all been there where we're going through something really hard and we don't feel God's presence. Maybe the death of your spouse, a sick child, a sick parent that you have to take care of, a child who's severely disabled, whatever it is, and you're struggling with whatever it is, and you're saying, God, where are you right now? God, of course, never leaves us, but we've, I think we've all felt where we didn't feel God's presence in our life at a particular time. Jesus was allowed to experience that feeling in his human nature, in his human nature on the cross. Why? So he could redeem it to show that not even suffering and death is more powerful than God's love and mercy. He was praying that psalm, giving us hope. That's why we still we wear crucifixes and not empty crosses. A Protestant minister asked me, how come you guys keep Jesus on the cross? Jesus is not there anymore. I said, hey, man, we know. We know Jesus at the right hand of the Father. We get it. Okay. But what does Moses say in Psalm 90? Our span is 70 years or 80 for those who are strong. And most of these are emptiness and pain. They pass swiftly and we are gone. Oh, we know that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, but most of life is this. And we don't keep Jesus on the cross because what, what does St. Let's go to the Bible. What does St. Paul say? I preach Christ and Christ Crucified. I want to know nothing, Paul says, except the cross of Jesus Christ. And what, he say, what else did he say? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This cross is a reminder to us that no matter what we're going through, this is not the end. Our Lord endured this for us because we have the hope of heaven. One last thing about Psalm 22 that a lot of people miss. 
Who was at the foot of the cross? Right, Mary, 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 and, and John, right? But one of the Marys was, of course, his mother. Now, when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified naked. Now, of course, we put a cloth on our Lord for dignity. But if you study Roman crucifixion, you understand that they only, not only wanted to maximize the pain, they wanted to maximize the embarrassment. They wanted to strip you of any human dignity you had left. So there's the Blessed Mother at the foot of the cross. And this is what Jesus would have prayed in the same Psalm 22. Yes, it was you who took me from the womb, entrusted me to my mother's breast. To you, I was committed from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Stay not far from me. Trouble is near, and there is no one to help. He's crying for his mother. That's what I would do. In fact, I've done that. There was a time I was cramping up. So, I mean, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's, I didn't have enough hydration and not enough water. And I got to where I was going and I was, I mean, cramps were like, it felt like somebody's reaching to my leg and ripping the muscles out. I was stomach cramp, leg cramps. And my first instinct was to cry for my mother. Mommy, help me. My mother died right, in 09. So I was crying out to her for her intercession, for the pain. And Jesus did the same thing on the cross. It's beautiful. Psalm 88. This is the psalm by Haman. This is the psalm traditionally that tradition says Jesus prayed when he was in the dungeon, in the cistern on Holy Thursday night. After his uh, trial before the Sanhedrin, this is where they put him the night before he uh, the night before Good Friday, before he went before Pilate and was, and was scourged and crucified. So if you ever go to the Holy Land, you can go down, you can go to this place. You walk down these stairs and you're in this pit and it's dark and it's empty and it's dry. But at the time of Jesus, it would have been, would have had water up to probably up to his ankles. And that's where he spent his last night on earth by himself. The prescript, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah for the choir master, in tone like mahalat lenaoh, that means on the sickness of affliction, a maskil, that means enlightenment, for Haman the Ezraite. O Lord and God of my salvation, I cry before you day and night. Let my prayer come into your presence. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is filled with evils. My life is on the brink of the grave. I am reckoned as one in the tomb. 
I am like a warrior without strength, like one roaming among the dead. And then the end. They surround me all the day like a flood. Together they close in against me. And this line always gets me. Friend and neighbor you have taken away. My one companion is darkness. Jesus is the light. He came to bring light into the darkness. And on his last day on earth, his one companion is darkness. I remember praying this psalm. My wife and I lost our baby. Because this is exactly how I felt. This psalm spoke to me. Like if it was written just for me. The psalms meet you where you are in your life right now. The psalms let you know that God is with you. That God loves you. That God never abandons you. Psalm 110. Another one written by David. A messianic psalm of fulfillment. Now, this one, the prescript's easy. Of David, a psalm. Easy. Now, here's what David writes. The Lord's revelation to my Lord. So the Lord God's revelation to my Lord. So David is the king. So who could be David's Lord? So if David's the king, and he says the, the Lord reveals to my Lord. So who are the only two people that can be David's Lord? His father or God. <laughs> That's it. Right? But here's the problem. Keep reading the psalm. That psalm uh, verse 3. This is about the Lord. That, that's his Lord. With you is princely rule on the day of your power. Wait, how could David's Lord be a prince? He's the king. The prince has to be a son. How could the son be greater than the king? Remember the context, right? 1 Kings chapter 2, when David, before David dies, he makes Solomon, his son, son of what well, he had with Bathsheba, king. So the prophet takes Solomon, he consecrates him, and he sits him on David's throne, and he becomes king before David dies. So the prince is greater than the king. But! How do we know he's not talking about Solomon here? What else does it say about this princely ruler? The Lord has sworn an oath he will not change. You are a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. Remember, he shows up in Genesis chapter 14. Abram, when he's not Abraham yet, right? Because when God changes your name, he changes your purpose in scripture. So he's still Abram, exalted father. He's not yet Abraham, father of multitudes, because God had not yet established the covenant. So Abram goes out. 
He wins the battle and he brings back the loot, what, what they call, it's called booty, but we can't use that word anymore because it means something different now, right? But he takes part of the loot and he ties it to Abram. So what does that mean? A, I mean, Abram ties it to Melchizedek. He, Abram recognizes the superior priesthood of Melchizedek. And what does Melchizedek offer in return? What does the king of righteousness offer in return for the tithe of Abram? Bread and wine. David says that this prince will be a priest forever. Solomon wasn't a priest forever. And that this priest will be in the line of Melchizedek. What did Jesus offer? Bread and wine. Because he is the true king of righteousness. Psalm of food. Again, just like the scriptures, they point to Jesus. Beautiful. I just want to point, and some of these psalms are actually quite fun. For example, uh, remember I talked about the cursing psalms? Well, there are other psalms that necessarily aren't curses, but they take some stuff out, right? So you see, okay, we'll do one, uh, verses 1 through 7. Why don't they include 8 and 9? For example, Psalm 137. This is the Babylonian exile. This was written during when, in Daniel chapter 1, when King Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and that's the start of the Babylonian exile. And they wrote this song during the, so it starts off, and this has no prescript. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and wept, remembering Zion. On the poplars that grew there, we hung up our harps. Oh, we remember being in Zion. We were, remember, we were sitting over there by the river. The beautiful trees were growing. We, we had our harps. We were singing the songs. We hung up our harps on the trees. For it was there that they asked us, our captors, for songs, our oppressors for joys. Sing us one of Zion's songs. Now, how could we sing the song of the Lord on foreign soil? And they said, if I remember you not, Jerusalem, if I prize not Jerusalem as the first of my days, let my tongue cleave to my mouth. But here's the part they left out. O daughter Babylon, destroyer, blessed whoever repays you the payment you paid to us. Blessed whoever grasps and shatters your children on the rock. Gee, dag. Now, what is this psalm saying? They're not actually saying that they're going to take anybody's children and smash them against the rock. What they're saying is, we remember how painful that exile was. So, we hope that someone did to you what you did to us. Remember it says, blessed whoever grasps and shatters your children on the rock. It didn't say that they were going to do it. They're saying that we wish somebody else would do what you did to us. That's what that is. Right? So don't get scared when you read stuff like that. There's one psalm in particular that really gets me. Whenever I go to adoration, every time I start off with Psalm 63. Now remember, I'm in adoration now. Oh God, you are my God. For you I long. For you my soul is thirsting. 
For you, my flesh is pining like a dry, weary land without water. So I gaze upon you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. For your love is better than life. What? What? I, your love is better than life. Whenever I pray that line, you know what my mind goes to? The martyrs. I had the wonderful opportunity to be in Croatia uh, this, a few months ago. And it was my first time there, and I loved it. One of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Now, we were visiting some holy sites, and we went to this church, and they said, oh, this is the body of Anastasius. Anastasius. I'm like, Anastasius? Then it hit me. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Please tell me that this is the same Anastasius from the Roman, from the Roman canon. In, in our right, we have a, a long Eucharistic prayer, and it includes the names of saints. Felicity, Perpetua, Lucy, Agnes, Cecilia, Anastasia. Wait, you're telling me that that is the tomb of Anastasia? Yes. What? What's so odd? These women died rather than deny Jesus. They were given a choice. You just deny your faith in Jesus Christ, and we won't cut your breasts off, and we won't burn you alive, and we won't feed you to the lions. You can go home. They died rather than deny Jesus. Why? Their love was better than life. And it continues, my lips will speak your praise. I will bless you all my life. I, how do we bless God? I will bless you all my life? How are we a blessing to God? By being the person who God created us to be not falling in for the culture of woke not falling for the lies that this culture is shoving down our throats every single day Paul says we have to put on the mind of Christ we have to think and act like people who are in love with Jesus Christ that's what that psalm is saying that's how we honor and glorify God, by being who God created us to be. Beautiful. The Psalms also point to some things, just a, a, a couple more little things here, that point us to what's going on at the Mass. For example, Psalm 26. In the Latin rite, the priest washes his hands before he makes the offering. That goes all the way back to Leviticus chapter 30. Oh, sorry, not Leviticus, Exodus chapter 30. So what happened? There was the tent of meeting and there was the altar of sacrifice. Between the tent of meeting and the altar of sacrifice, there was a laver, a huge bronze bowl that the priests, the high priest and the priests washed their hands and their feet before they offered the sacrifice. 
That's why in John's gospel, not the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but in John's gospel, at the Last Supper, what does Jesus do? Washes their feet. Two reasons. One, he was showing them the model for how they're supposed to serve the church. These were the leaders of the church. And he was showing them that headship and leadership and authority is rooted in service. He was giving them the model of how they're supposed to leave the church. I have not come to be served, but to serve. So he washes their feet. The other reason he washes their feet, he was instituting the priesthood. Because before they offered the sacrifice, they, the priests washed their hands and their feet. Check out Psalm 26, verse 6 and 7. I wash my hands in innocence and take my place around your altar, singing a song of thanksgiving. A song of thanksgiving. What do we call that? What's that word in Greek, thanksgiving? Eucharistane. So he washes his hands, he goes around the altar, and he sings a song of Eucharist, recounting all your wonders. The Mass is also in the Psalms. And the last one, this is a psalm I pray whenever I am waiting in line for the Sacrament of Reconciliation. This is the psalm, you'll get this one, this is, this is the prescript. For the choir master, a psalm of David, when the prophet named, came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Hmm. We all know what happened there, right? David is the greatest king in the history of Israel. He's only the second king. Saul, uh, Saul was the first king. Uh, David was the second king. Why is he considered the greatest king in the history of Israel? Saul, in fact, Acts the Apostle says he's a man after God's own heart. Why? He's the only king that never worshipped a false god or another god. But he wasn't perfect. He was an adulterer and a murderer. But God still used him for his glory. So don't think, oh, I'm so weak and I'm so sinful that God can't use me. <clears throat> Wrong answer. Remember, we're just instruments. God's the musician. And we have to work to be finely tuned instruments in God's hands. And the, one way, the way we become more finely tuned is the sacrament of reconciliation. Here's David after his whole thing. With, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but with Bathsheba. Again, I'm, I'm standing in line for confession, and I'm praying this as, as I'm recollecting my own sins. Have mercy on me, God, according to your merciful love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me completely from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. My offenses, truly, I know them. My sin is always before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned. What is evil in your sight, I have done. And he goes on, huh? What a beautiful preparation before we break our hearts open and pour them out before the priest who is in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, 
to receive the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus, we pour our hearts out like David did. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, take time. Maybe go through the Psalms, pick one. Maybe there's a Psalm that speaks to you. That says, hey, I, I like this Psalm. This Psalm, this Psalm is doing it for me. Memorize that Psalm. Or, or, or more, recite it slowly and prayerfully. You know, what I like to do when I'm praying the Liturgy of the Hours by myself, if a, if a certain line of psalm hits me, oh, oh, I just got to stop right now and rest in the word. God, God, is, God is hitting my heart right now. And I just want to take just a few seconds to allow God to just to rest in that word, to allow God to speak to my heart in that moment. Take time for that. The Psalms then will become a wellspring of prayer, right? It's like a, a, a wellspring that's gushing out of your heart. The tremendous impact of the Psalms is, hits you at a very deep spiritual level. And we must pray on that level in order for the Psalms to truly speak to us. Now, the Psalms are meant to be sung. Right? So many of the prescripts have on the harp, um, on the getith. A getith is an ancient lap harp, uh, lap harp out of goth. You know, and, and so, but I often don't sing the psalms. I often do pray some of them Hebrew and some Latin and things. But singing the psalms, meditating on them, loving them, using them in all the incidents of your life. To see how God is speaking to you at this particular time in your life. When you're searching for a job. When you're thinking maybe this person is the one that God has put in my life to help me get to heaven. Maybe you're discerning a religious vocation. Maybe you're planning on making a significant change in your life. Let the Psalms speak to you. And finally, my friends, the function of the Psalms is to reveal to us God as the treasure whom we love because he loved us first. The Psalms allow us to hide in his heart and in his soul and enter the depths of his infinite light. 1 John 4.16 says, God is love and he who lives in love lives in God, and God lives in him. By entering deeply into the Psalms, God will speak to your heart and to your life. So listen to the voice of God in the Psalms and allow that voice to change your life. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you.